Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Stocks for beginners. Phil Muscatello and Finpods are authorized reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation. That's sort of one of the things that I've discovered is that you know some of the some of the great companies they tend to control more and more of their tech stack, and that's almost an underrated uh, advantage. Nobody really thinks of the advantages Apple's chip design, for example, gives them, but. Yeah, I'm not sure nobody I mean, like, you know, that's not a general talk, right? People are not going, oh, you know, they've got great skills in silicon. But it's the great skills in silicon which is driving the Mac adoption, for example, or, you know, these crazy things that they're doing with Vision Pro. Why does nobody else have the input that you can get using your hands and eyes? It's, again, crazy new input design. That's because you can marry the hardware with the software with the human-computer interaction. That's just a crazy level of primary technology invention capability. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Computer networking, data science and machine learning are at the heart of enterprise software. I'm happy today to be able to talk to someone who has serious form in this space. Hello, Annabelle. How are you, Phil? Very good. And you're also a major Tesla fan as well, aren't you? I am a Tesla fan, yeah. I've got, you know, a Tesla car and I've got uh, Tesla batteries and uh, got some Tesla shares as well. So, yes, I am. I'm, you know, I've been on the Tesla bandwagon since 2013. Anaban Mahanti is a lead advisor for Seven Investing. Before Seven Investing, Anaban spent over five years at The Motley Fool, most recently as their director of research. At The Motley Fool, he was also the founding lead advisor of the stock-picking newsletter, Extreme Opportunities. He has an academic record that's way too long to go into here, but you can browse at your leisure in the blog post. So coming from academia to investing, how did that go? What was that like? And um, it's, I mean, it's a pretty big transition for many people to take that kind of step. It is. Um, but, you know, like I when, when I was um, in academia, or doing research, or doing applied industrial research sort of thing. Still talking with companies, consulting with companies, you know, going to conferences, seeing what companies and academic folks are doing. At the same time, it's also investing, right? So I, I was across investing for a long time, and then sort of an opportunity presented, and I thought, well, it might be cool to do this sort of, you know, on a full-time basis. You know, I've been in academia for a long time, so it sort of meant like, well, it's a, you know, a change of pace, a change of you know, a new challenge. And uh, it was great. It's like any change that is, uh, I guess, 360 turn from what you are normally doing. It is definitely difficult in the beginning, right? Because, you know, what you know as as an investor, you know, when you're investing your money, because you typically feel investing your money, you're following somebody else's advice or, you know, you're looking online, you know, you're following the websites, you know, CNBC and whatnot, or reading the Wall Street Journal. There's some input that you're getting there, but your your sort of frame of reference changes when you become part and parcel of that crowd, and you have to now produce content that makes sense, and you have to produce uh, information that might be useful to 
whoever is going to read it and things like that. So it was a, it was a big transition. And you sort of start at the bottom of the ladder, so to speak. You know, so I started as an analyst and sort of worked my way up over time. But yeah, it was, it was an interesting journey and definitely enjoyed it. And, I, and it was a different change of pace for me. So yeah, I still dabble a little bit. You know, I maintain or at least started dabbling back in research, working with students at, uh, at universities and working with colleagues I've known. So it's just to keep in touch with what's going on. So yeah, I try to dabble in to put into the spectrum. What was it like when you first made the transition? Was there anything about the way that you were thinking about companies that changed from when you were looking at them from an academic point of view to an investing point of view? So when you're an academic, most of the time you don't really think about, like as an academic, you're not thinking about investments per se. You think about technologies and you think about ideas and you think about basically one of the big things in at least in, in the computing world is novel ideas or basically new ideas, right? That you know, sort of, you know, or solving a problem. So you, you sort of think from the point of view, okay, you know, here's the problem and what's a solution to it? Or what's a better solution, a better way of doing the same thing? You know, it could be something like, no, Jerry, you're streaming videos, can you make it more efficient? As an example, you know, you look at uh, what generative AI is doing today, for example, you know, can you use generative you know, people want to compose emails, that's a normal task. People want to write blogs. That's a normal task. How can you make that task better, simpler, more engaging, more entertaining, more informative? Right. That's sort of you know, where the technology comes from. So, you, so you're, the, the, the technologists are working on some of the underlying tools and methods and, and things like that, and trying to sort of advance the state of art. The biggest takeaway, sort of initially though, was you, when I sort of started looking as sort of the full time investor, my biggest takeaway was there's sort of a gap between where the technology is and when sort of it hits mainstream. There's always a lag. And sometimes you can exploit that lag if you understand. But you know, here's the thing. Academics and researchers work on hundreds of different things all the time. Not everything becomes practical, right? And and this specific example to give, for example, you know, my PhD dissertation was on video streaming technologies. The software technologies I invented or worked on the greater, they were, you know, they were probably to be the best you could use, but they relied on something called the broadcast equivalent on the internet called multicast. Now, multicast never really became a, a reality, but streaming did become a reality in different ways, right? So sometimes the best technology, the best ideas may, may not necessarily get commercialized. That's the thing to realize. But you can sort of see trends that are materializing and you can sort of try to capitalize on them. That's sort of the... I, I think the edge from knowing the tech that you can get, but you have to realize that not again, not every company in that space comes. It's very hard to sort of go in and look at from the time of say you know streaming videos. If you think about it, there's so many different companies, right? And if you invest in probably a hundred of them, the biggest success is the one that people know of. People don't remember all the others that didn't actually succeed in a big way. So that's something to again bear in mind. Right. Another example would be, you know, if you think about uh, what's happening, for example, today in this generative AI space, right? One of the core pieces of the work, which is known as attention, right? Attention. There was a paper called "Attention is All You Need." That came from Google, right? So Google is left behind, so to speak, in many ways, because the the tech for you know, generative models and so on was uh, bought mainstream by a different company, right? OpenAI. 
So, I mean, those are sort of the things, but at least, you know, people who are in the field would re- have realized, okay, this is a transformative technology. Then, you know, so they came up with attention on your need. They came up with transformers, uh, you know, in, say, in, in Google DeepMind and things like that. And then you'd sort of follow the research and you'd say, okay, this, you know, Meta is doing this and they are doing that. And so, so you'd sort of see a trend. And you'd realize, okay, maybe this trend is going to shape in some way where computing is headed. But the, I think the hardest thing is that then to turn that into an investing idea, I think is very hard. It's hard by definition because, you know, again, there'll be so many different startups in that space. Which one do you want to back? <laughs> and that's part of the thing about investing is it's so easy to get excited by stories, especially when you're first beginning. You think, oh, this is such a great idea. It's got to make a lot of money. But um, this is actually something that you've got to be really careful about. That is true. Yeah. So stories are, I, I mean, stories, I at least told you, the stories tend to move stocks as well, right? And and a good story is important. I guess a part of the job as CEO is to be a good storyteller because being a good storyteller has multiple advantages. One of them being, you know, it works as a recruiting tool, works as a sales tool, it works for pitching to raise money, right? So a, a good CEO or, you know, leader of a company has to be a good storyteller. It's kind of important. It is important at the same time, you have to sort of distinguish, as you rightly said, that you know, which stories are going to result in something big. It's, there is, I, I don't think there's, see, the thing, the thing there is that there's no, at least in my view, there's no formula to identify that story is good because no one has a 100% track record of identifying that story is good. Uh, sometimes you can see, I guess, the way, at least, you know, my sort of rough model would be, I see what I like. Then I look around me, what people like, right? So this is sort of the Peter Lynch sort of model where if people are using something, there's, there must be some interest. There's some reason behind the interest. And, you know, you look at the, you know, and then you can decide to whether you want to bracket yourself in sort of the early adopter part or the late adopter or, you know, the early majority, whichever, you know, in the, it's sort of, if you think of the Gartner hype cycle or, or adoption cycles, uh, then you, you sort of have to figure out, well, where is it in sort of the adoption curve? So I just look at, you know, is the technology interesting to me? Does it solve a problem? And, you know, do I think other people are using it, are likely to use it? Do they think it's interesting? And that's sort of that guides what I think is going to happen. But uh, again, an example would be there are a lot of counterexamples here. So counterexample would be uh, Apple makes a smartphone, the iPhone. One could say that, well, all the other phone manufacturers of that time, be it Motorola, Nokia, and everybody else, well, they should also be able to transition and build this. And in fact, they should be very good at it because they are the ones who own the market in terms of the cell phones, right? And they have the distribution for it. So then the question becomes, why wouldn't that happen? And why do you think Apple would continue? That's where I think, you know, if you have an answer for that, you can use that as a basis for making your, I guess, your thesis. And in most cases, I think that the difficulty for, I guess, sort of old to new is, and the new touches so many different parts of the technology stack, so to speak, right? So an iPhone is not just manufacturing it and making it look good. It touches design, like manufacturing. So you now need a design aspect. You need to have material science engineering. You need to know human-computer interaction and just the design aspects of it. How does one interact with it? Then, okay, to make all of this thing work, you need to have skills in um, software. But then not everything is about software because the software actually is tightly integrated with the hardware. So you need to have underlying hardware skills. You know, what would you put on device? What are you going to put off device? 
what's going to be on the secure enclave. Sometimes what you'd find is that, oh, there is no hardware tech that I can buy off the shelf. So then you probably have to design it, which is why, for example, Apple as a company designs its own chips, right? It just allows them to have their own roadmap and not be dependent on somebody else's roadmap when it comes to, and they, you know, they're the largest chip designer in the world. So those skills that sort of go from design to, or the hardware design to actually manufacturing it, to having, you know, the OS layer, then to have the chip layer, and then to have the control for the chips and you know, the software that writes in assembly code, for example, or machine language code. All of that is basically the tech stack, right? And in a company that doesn't have all of those skills or those companies that typically in, in the old world, the, the usual method of doing, approach to doing these things would be to say, you know what, I am good at putting together this, but I need that, that, and that. So I'm going to just outsource those to experts. Those experts then in turn actually service. So you might find that, you know, there's a company out maybe in Germany that is also servicing Nokia and Motorola and Samsung and somebody else. So everybody else basically gets the same thing. The IP is probably owned by this company out in Germany. And if you want to make a change, well, the change has to be made by the IP owner. That's the usual model versus the sub this vertical integration where you own more and more and more of the key components of the tech. That's a different model. And I think a lot of competitive advantages come from owning sort of the key technology elements. I think that's sort of one of the things that I've discovered is that, you know, some of the, some of the great companies, they tend to control more and more of their tech stack. And that's almost an underrated uh, advantage. Nobody really thinks of the advantages Apple's chip design, for example, gives them. But there are initial nobody, I mean, like, you know, that's not a general talk, right? People are not going, you know, you know, they've got great skills in silicon. But it's the great skills in silicon which is driving the Mac adoption, for example, or, you know, these crazy things that they're doing with Vision Pro, right? Why does nobody else have the input that you can get using your hands and eyes? It's, again, crazy new input design. That's because you can marry the hardware with the software with the human-computer interaction. That's just a crazy level of primary technology invention capability. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You made a little reference in that answer to the hype cycle. How do you see the hype cycle? Have you got a description of the hype cycle? I think it'd be great for beginner investors to be aware that there is a cycle in this space. Yeah. Like there's, there's a definition, I don't have, you know, so there's a, Dartmouth has a hype cycle definition, um, basically has this form, the way to think about it is that, you know, things start low, then it becomes, you know, the sort of the, the noise becomes exponentially increasing to hit sort of a peak, and then sort of it starts fading out and fading out, and then you sort of, you know, you hit this phase of, uh, you know, despondency, nobody cares about that tech anymore. But then some real stuff eventually starts again, you know, from the depth of despair starts to come. That's the problem I have with it's very difficult 
like I think not everything fits in that sort of pattern is is my issue. Like for example, you know, you could you, I remember the three D printing craze. There was a time when everybody thought that from shoes to you know tables to whatever else, we're just going to three D print it. Uh, we all have custom stuff, and you know, it was a high pipe pipe. Then sort of oh, it fizzled out, fizzled, fizzled, fizzled out, completely gone. But the next part didn't really happen, where it didn't really take off. I mean. If you wanted to say that you know, 3D printing is used in many different parts, but it's not mainstream. So uh, it's a hype cycle sort of made in the hype made look like it's not a mainstream, right? Same thing with the AI and the general uh, technologies that we're talking about now. Are they going to fall mainstream? More likely to go because, you know, there's a lot of consumer touch points. But is it? I don't know. <laughs> So getting back to AI and Google's role in it, um, I heard on another podcast the other other day that someone was analysing it and his thesis was that um, while Google developed the technology initially, they held back on it because they felt, well, they felt that Google felt that it was a direct competitor to their business model of search. Do you see it that way? Well, it's hard to know. Like, So you can make a case for it in the sense that if the search results result in a definitive answer, that sort of takes away the benefit of having links, right? Or their you know clickable links, and the and the ad model as well, and they add and therefore the ad model, right? But here's the thing: it could be certain elements of their business, you know, or certain divisions or certain parts of the business, you know, look at this and say, ah, oh, you know, it's going to disrupt our. But most good companies, like it disrupt our existing business model, but most good companies are fully aware that, especially in the tech land, that if you don't disrupt yourself or your business model, somebody else is going to disrupt your business model, right? So an example, I'm I, I speculating here, for example, I think Apple is slowly but steadily disrupting the App Store model right now. Um, because if you look at it, the next generation devices like such as the Watch has an App Store, but it's not really very successful. In fact, all of the things that are really successful are, con- are primarily controlled by Apple. Right, and it remains to be seen what type of success they're looking to do with their next generations of the inner spatial computing. That's an example. But if we sort of think about Google's case, I, again, I can make an argument either way. But if you look at what typical use case would be for generative AI, like from a search point of view, if if I want to know, you know, can you please explain to me what quantum uh, mechanics means, or can you please uh, explain to me? What conduction is? Well, even today, uh, if you if you put that query into Google, it basically would surface either a Wikipedia page as you know and part of it, and then ask you to click through it. Right? Actually, there's no ad revenue there. Most of the ad revenue, though, like you would think, comes from things like what? Like you know, people are searching, "Can I get a sneaker of this type?" Or you know, I am looking for that Air Jordan that looks like this. Can I get a ticket for a Taylor Swift concert? You know, where I, and all of those things. And then those result in clicks. I guess there's a simple way for them to embed, you know, the generative AI, like something like Google's Bard, for example, with search. Because you could, for things that are very straightforward, you want to give definitive answers. So you want to be, you know, corresponding with people, you correspond and you give them the answer. For stuff that is elsewhere, you can definitely have a sidebar of ads, or you could even make, ads somehow flow through the conversation that you're having with the ads. I think it's possible. Personally, my view is that I don't think they thought it's a threat to their business model. I think they can very much 
have a business model around using generative AI and have search and actually leverage generative AI in, say, Google Work Suite, right? So actually, they, they've now, now made, you know, if, you, if you're a personal Google user, you can enable the generative AI on Google Docs, right? So you can just, you know, select and say, rephrase this, do that, and, and all of those things. So they are making it available. It's, I think, going to be extremely powerful. And for businesses, you can charge for that. I don't think that's the reason. My primary thinking is that I, I think they were conservative because there's a lot of what's known as hallucination, right? So hallucination basically means the AI thinks it knows, but it actually doesn't know. Well, that's, you know, basically makes up rubbish. For example, there's, an, there's been a criminal trial where the judge has found that all the citations and stuff was made up because a person has been practicing law for a long time basically just relied on generative AI technology to write stuff up and didn't bother to cross-check with a reliable database as to whether or not those cases actually do exist. And so I think they knew that the, the problem of hallucination, they also knew about the problem that there's a lot of biases that can be built into because of generative AI and depends on who is training these. And you know, there's reinforcement learning in the sense that you know you have human you have human feedback involved. So you type something, you know, you ask for something, it gives you something, response. Those responses and are then graded by human graders, right? So how do you take care of the biases that they are there among those humans? And or you can ask the, the response, the, the person who received the response to actually rate it. How do you actually take that? All of those things are, I think, raise interesting questions. So I think Google just probably thought, and this is, I don't have a way of knowing, but my guess is that they are just a bit premature and you'll get more bang for the buck by reading it, right? And But I think just OpenAI and Microsoft forced their hand and, and therefore they had to just rush through it and be part and parcel of this, uh, you know, game. But that's my interpretation. So part and parcel of investing in the technology sector is that a lot of these companies that are starting up have a lot of potential to profit, but sometimes not even any revenue yet. How do you value companies in this space? And at that at that end, if, if it really, if you want to get in on the bleeding edge of where the technology is heading, companies that are not profitable, I think, are typically so. Like you know, so I, I collaborated with a colleague who has got a small early stage venture venture fund, and you know, so they just sort of bat ideas and talk about ideas, and then and, you know, and some of those valuations would look nosebleed at early stage companies. But, but you know, the thing, those companies that have got revenue, they might be growing month on month, at least in the early stages. Uh, you know, revenue might be growing hundred percent plus month over month, right? Not year over year. So they would have some crazy multiple, but you know, the crazy multiple would be off like you know, hundred thousand dollars revenue or something like that, some small amount of dollars. If you don't have any revenue, like really as a concept, that's really, really early stage VC land. I mean, it's a bit of dark throwing going on. There's a lot of, I think, you know, from experience, you you would have a feel of this sort of work. So you'd, you know, and, and the other thing that I think people do not realize, but or maybe do realize, I don't know, a lot of companies that are successful today uh, in the public market, if you go and trace the history back in time, as startups, they probably started as something else. They probably, you know, they did a pivot at some point. You know, I was reading about Roku, for example, and the, the, the Roku founder had done a startup with a team, you know, one of our TV, 
a TiVo equivalent companies, uh, TiVo competitors, you know, that sold it to someone, worked for a few years as uh, or a few months, I'm not sure exactly, at Netflix as a VP of uh, tech, I think, looking at building a Netflix player, then came and did this, and then, you know, initially was focused on something else, and they did Pivot. So Pivot is quite common, right? So things change. And and we sort of just have a survival bias there. We, we see those companies that have pivoted, pivoted, and pivoted, and then survived and become something else. So there's a lot of myths. But I think if you spoke to VC people, a lot of them basically invest their funds on how they feel about the founders, right? So they're investing in people and ideas, both. And the people and ideas are very tightly coupled. So I think that's what a lot of that early stage investing is all about, is people and ideas, Investing in people that you like, you feel that they have, you know, they're willing to take on the challenge and, and and build a team. So I think that's what happens in the very early stages. There's a million ways to invest in stocks, but by following a few simple rules, you can avoid many common investment traps and unwanted anxiety. What if you were able to follow seven advisors, seven principles, and seven monthly stock picks on your own terms? Seven Investing might be for you. They want to invest for the long haul in great companies with great leaders who can compound capital for years. Seven Investing are pleased to offer listeners of this podcast a free trial for a week and 33% off the annual price. If you sign up using the promo code STOCKS FOR BEGINNERS, this is solid research from experienced advisors who live and breathe the markets. Go to 7investing.com, that's the number 7 investing, and use the promo code STOCKS FOR BEGINNERS to get your absolutely free trial and 33% discount on the annual premium plan. Okay, well, let's uh, start looking into some companies that you've written about recently, and they're not startup; they're um, pretty well established companies. Um, the first one is uh, D Local, and the Nasdaq code is DLO. Um, tell us about this company. What does it do? What do you find interesting about it? So this one is a controversial company in the sense that there's a pretty active short going on. So short means uh, investors have borrowed shares from other people that own. A piece of that business and actually sold it. And the thesis is that the, the stock price is going to go down so they can buy when the price is low and give it back, uh, give the shares back to people that they borrowed it from. There's an active short from uh, Muddy Waters that claims that there's a fraud here. <laughs> so, why would you like a business that somebody thinks is a fraud? Well, so the, at a high level, this is, a, this is a business out of Uruguay, so Latin American business that is focused on payments, right? And it does, it sort of two things. It allows payments to be processed for a company or an enterprise, and it also processes payments for an enterprise. So that, that sounds a bit confusing, but the way I would, I would explain that is, suppose you are uh, Amazon, or, or suppose you're Nike, and you sell stuff online in different countries. You want to be able to take payments from customers. So you basically need a payment processor. And if you want a payment processor that works really well in emerging economies, then you could go to D-Local. So that's one example. But also, could be that Nike has, say, a small presence in some country, let's say Chile, and just making it up. (laughs) These, These are just examples. And it wants to pay people that work for our contractors, for example, like for Nike, how do you pay? In, you know, you could set up your bank account and do everything, or you could work with the local, which could do the payments for you. So, so one of the things is called paying out 
to your um, contractors and employees and things like that. So if you, for example, a ride-sharing business, you have, you're, you're receiving money from customers, but you're also paying out to people who are actually driving. So that's payout to people who are contractors. Pay-in is when you are receiving payments from customers. So what I like about it is I see now, can I caveat this? Because you know, there have been many living uh, fronts in the financial services industry, and it's, sometimes it's very difficult to actually support it. But these companies, if you look, look at the list of logos that it, it services, that's some, these, these are companies are the best of the best. You know, Salesforce, Meta, uh, I believe Nike, Spotify, these guys are using them. So I see this, a list of customers that are A-grade. B, I see them serving those markets that are generally not served by the big payments companies like Adyen or PayPal and things like that. And C, I think if you look at sort of the demographic movement, think about countries like India and so on, these have got a lot of young population and a large population, right? So a lot of the emerging, emerging economies together have a huge population. They're all trying to sort of, you know, become you know, rise from lower middle class, upper middle class, and, you know, raise the standard of living. So there's a huge opportunity there, right? So servicing that market is an interesting opportunity to sort of get exposure there. And uh, presumably in some of these economies, their local currency and their local economies aren't able to support this kind of entrepreneurial activity of these young people as well, and inflation that might get in the way of whatever they're transacting in. Yeah, so often I think the biggest issue is that the payments rail in emerging markets are completely different in many ways from the payment rails in developed markets, which means that the companies that work in the developed markets are not necessarily in the best position to serve the developing markets. An example might be like credit cards, for example, are very common in you know US, Europe, and Australia, New Zealand. The credit cards are not that common if you go to Brazil. Right, so they, you know, or if you go to India, then use you know things like um, UPI, which is a universal payment identifier. So people pay using the phone, using a U- UPI, and these people might not even have a bank account. So how do you handle those payments? Sort of integrate and make it work for these other large enterprises who want to do business in these markets. I think that's it's a very interesting problem to solve. And and then, so I think they're solving interesting problem. Then when I look at the reported numbers, the revenues are growing strongly. Their total processing volume is growing strongly. It's a profitable company. And then so the venture fund, private equity investors that took it public, uh, I've forgotten the name now, I think it's General Ventures, GV. Yeah, so they still own a significant share uh, stake in the business and have been buying stock through this sort of downturn in the stock price. Management have been buying stock as well. So again, none of that is a proof that you know things are fine, but I do see, you know, on a sort of risk-adjusted basis, I find that well, it's an interesting market. The reporting numbers are great. The clients that they're serving are A-rate, so it ticks a lot of those boxes for me. And again, investing to me at least personally, and I personally own shares in it. It's sort of risk-reward basis. I think there are risks here, but I guess if I had a basket of opportunities, the way I would describe this, if I had a basket of say thirty odd opportunities that looked exactly like this. I would swing at them because I think on balance, it will work out. That's sort of how I look at it. And of course, it's not a recommendation to buy by any means. <laughs> no. Do your own research. <laughs> yes, always. Yes. People should always do their own research. And, you know, if somebody talks about something, I think it's an interesting way to, for people to surface an idea. 
but then you need to have a look and know whether it's right for you and stuff like that. So it seemed to be that it was about a year ago that cybersecurity was a theme that um, many people and many investors were, were talking about, but it, it seems to be on the other end of the hype cycle at the moment. And mm. so, but you're interested in Zscaler. So tell us about Zscaler. What do they do? Well, obviously, cybersecurity, and what yes. do you find interesting about them? So I guess cybersecurity in general, I'm interested in for a couple of reasons. Like, you know, they might be on the other side, other end of the hype cycle, but I don't think the number of attacks that companies and government uh, infrastructure have been experiencing have decreased. They, you know, it continues unabated. Uh, there is state-sponsored uh, cyber attacks. And as you move more and more things to the cloud or, you know, basically, you know, you put your health records online and you want everything to be automated, well, it's just you need to have them secure. And the other thing I like really about this is companies could decide to stall their IT, their digital transformation projects. Can a company in good conscience actually pause their cybersecurity projects? I don't think so because, I mean, you, if you are dealing with customer data or you have a lot of employees, you, you want to ensure and should be ensuring that they are protected and covered and safe. It, to, to me, it seems like it's a bit, you know, it is affected by the cycle but shouldn't be as affected by the economic cycle. Uh, is another reason I like it. And then, of course, I think there's a number of things happening in that sort of space. So, so the key thing here is this company provides a number of different tools. So if you want to access the internet as an employee of a company which uses Zscaler, then you want to make sure that the traffic that's going from your device to the internet is safe and the traffic that's coming back from the internet to your device is also safe. You also want to ensure that when you're accessing company infrastructure that is also safe. In the past, accessing company infrastructure meant that you basically VPN. So use a virtual private network. And the idea was that, at least from a tech point of view, the company's infrastructure would sit in a couple of different offices. There'd be in you know, some large buildings, and then you would build a perimeter around the fence, so to speak. So you have a building, and you protect it using a fence. And uh, the fence is supposed to keep the bad people in outside. Right, so people could go to the office and then work from inside, so they're inside the property, and and that's fine. Or your VPN, which is a private way of entering the property. Once you're inside, then you're regarded as safe. Like you have, let's assume that you have a special key. The problem is that that kind of no longer works because infrastructure is no longer housed per se in a fenced property because it may be in the cloud somewhere, somewhere something is sitting in the Microsoft cloud, something somewhere else. How do you ensure everything is fenced? So. To protect these assets that a company has, infrastructure assets that are in the cloud, for example, you would also need some tech. That's another tech that these guys provide. Then the third thing to realize is inspecting traffic that's going back and forth is really difficult because, and remember, everything is encrypted, including the hackers' communications would also be encrypted, right? So uh, you're basically looking at encrypted comms and try to do basically deep packet inspections. How do you do that? So they, these guys basically have built what I would say a distributed cloud. So they have single machines spread across the globe, which basically can sit in the middle, sort of inspect the traffic at scale, including encrypted traffic, and ensure that you know traffic is going from that device to sort of your device to the phone or from your phone to their cloud, then somewhere else in the internet. All of that happens in a safe manner and happens quick without introducing significant delays. So I think it's pretty big technical challenge to address. So I think they do a good job there. 
And so their growth story tells us that you know they're signing lots and lots of customers. I believe that there are a few competitors in this space. Do you see Zscaler as having some kind of competitive advantage? There are a number of companies in this space. So the biggest competitors, I would say, are companies that what I would say, say sell hardware solutions that provide perimeter-style protection. So they basically help build these perimeters. So these are firewall boxes and things like that. Now, a lot of those companies are trying to move to a cloud. So that's one thing. So I guess the biggest competitor in many ways is legacy technology. I mean, if you spent millions building an infrastructure to protect your infrastructure, <laughs> then it's very hard to rip it off. So the, the existing company, which has sold you that infrastructure, probably has a leg up in, the, in its way to come and say, okay, you know, we can now make it cloud compatible by doing this, this, and this. So that's one way to think about that. Now, the Palo Alto Network used to be sort of a, I used to call it a legacy company, but now I think Palo Alto Networks has built a lot of cloud tech into its products. And again, they're doing this, you know, sort of hybrid, you know, you have on-premises, cybersecurity, you have cloud, and you sort of marry the two together. That's an interesting way of looking at it because that's probably, it helps you transition. So that's one. But otherwise, Cloudflare competes with them. So Cloudflare, although primarily being sort of a network performance business, has sort of tried to reposition themselves as a cybersecurity business as well, because they have a similar sort of proxy network that they've built. Now, they've built that, so these computer infrastructure spread across the internet to speed up delivery of web pages. That's primarily their reason for building it. But you could not think that, you know, you have this infrastructure capability, you can now try to use that to roll you know, security solutions as well. They built it to have specialized routing between their devices so that you can know you can have fast routing and things like that, content delivery and so on. So they sort of they are trying to compete as well in that space. But there's a lot of complementary things that this company also does. It complements, for example, uh, with other companies like say Okta, which provides single sign-on uh, tech. Uh, it collaborates with um, a company such as CrowdStrike, which provides the best way to sort of think about CrowdStrike would be to say that this is a company that provides modern virus protection, <laughs> right? So it's you know real-time virus protection uh, on the end devices. So it's a, a lot of these companies collaborate, a lot of these companies uh, compete. And it just, I think, boils out the fact that this is a very large market with a lot of different angles to yeah, that's what I can. That's what I can hear in your description of it, that there's so many subtleties and nuances involved in how the approaches and the solutions that are being utilized. That's right. And, but, but that's partly because, you know, the, just the subsequently as a whole, then it's like, I don't think there's one size fits all type of approach here. Plus, different, you know, with a large company, small company, whether you have got, you know, your own infrastructure, you, everything is in the cloud, it's hybrid. Do you have part of your workforces bring your own devices? So many different ways to look at is how do you handle password? What solutions do you have for, you know, the password management? What sort of, you know, policies do you have? Um, what type of data do you handle? All of these things, I think, introduce different specificities, and those specificities result in required different solutions. Okay, Anaband, so just to finish off, what sort of advice would you give a new investor, someone who's just woken up today and they've started thinking about investing and that the stock market is going to be something for them? Just give us one little tip that you would suggest for them. So, Nick, you know, once you read broadly, right, being informed is the starting point for everything, right? So, you know, let's 
you know, read, uh, don't blindly follow what other people say, read, be informed, build a trusted circle of people that you can listen to, hear from, and things like that. So I think that's the biggest thing. And it's, I think it's generally true for most things is just broad knowledge development, I think is just helpful. So um, Anaban, just to um, give us a little uh, bit of information about 7 Investing and why listeners might be interested in utilizing the services. Yeah, so, so Seven Investing is a, is a US-based company that uh, focuses on surfacing stock ideas. Seven different ideas each month. Uh, there's a research report that accompanies each company that has been surfaced. And there's a scorecard that uh, tracks these companies, the company updates that are provided by for the companies that have been put forward in the in one of the seven ideas each month. It doesn't provide, I guess, things like you know position sizing and things like that. It just gives people ideas as to what these are some of the companies that the advisors find interesting and why with the full detailed report. That's what the company primarily does. If listeners are interested in finding out more, go to seveninvesting.com. And if you want to sign up with the promo code stocks for beginners or lowercase one word, you'll get a 33% discount on an annual plan. Anaban Mahanti, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Phil. Thanks for listening to Stocks for Beginners. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player or tell a friend who might want to learn more about investing for their future. 